Section 2 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sky Asimaru. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Section 2. Johann Amos Comenius by Burke A. Hinsdale. Johann Amos Comenius, 1592 to 1671, by Burke A. Hinsdale. Johann Amos Comenius, the Slavic educational reformer, was born March 28, 1592, at Nivnitz, a village of Moravia. His family belonged to the small but well-known body that takes its name from the country, the Moravian Brethren, or simply the Moravians, whose origin goes back to Hus, the Bohemian Reformer. The Brethren are known for their simple evangelical faith, their humble fraternal lives, their interest in education, and particularly their devotion to the cause of missions. Comenius was a Moravian, a minister, and a bishop and he illustrated the best ideas and inspirations of the Brotherhood in his teachings and life. The parents of Comenius died when he was still a child, and he fell into the hands of guardians, who allowed his education to be neglected. He received his elementary education in one of the people's schools that sprang out of the Hussite movement. When sixteen years of age, he attended a Latin school, and at twenty he was studying theology at Hebron College in the Duchy of Nassau. Next he spent some time in travel and in study at Heidelberg, and returned to Moravia in 1614, being twenty-two years of age. Too young to be ordained to the ministry, he was made rector of a Moravian school at Perar, near Olmutz, where his career as a teacher and educator began. His attention had already been turned to the teaching art as practiced in the schools, both by observation and by reading the schemes of educational reform that had been propounded. In 1616 he was ordained to the pastorate, and two years later he was set over the flourishing church of Fulneck, where he also had the supervision of a school. Here he married, and, for two or three years, says Professor Lorry, spent a happy and active life, enjoying the only period of tranquillity in his native country, which it was ever his fortune to experience. For the restoration of a time so happy he never ceased to pine during all his future wanderings. Soon the Thirty Years' War broke out, and, in 1621, Fulnick fell into the hands of the Spaniards, who dealt with it according to their usual habit in such cases. Comenius lost all his property, including his library and manuscripts, and became for the rest of his life in exile. His wife and child he lost soon after. He had been so unfortunate as to incur the enmity of the Jesuits. We cannot follow him closely in his wanderings. For some time he lived in secrecy in Moravia and Bohemia. Then he found a resting place at Lisa, in Poland, where in 1621 he published a little work that at once made him famous. This was the Janua Lingarum Resurreta, the Gate of Tongues Unlocked which was translated into the principal languages of Europe and several languages of Asia. 
The next year he was elected chief bishop of the brethren, and henceforth there came upon him daily, as upon the great apostle, the care of all the churches. Still, he never ceased reading, thinking, and writing on educational matters, and was often engaged in the practical work of teaching. He visited England, called there to confer with the long parliament in reference to the reform of education. He visited Sweden, where he discussed education and learning with the great Oxenstierna. Then he lived for a time at Elbing in East Russia. Next he was called to Transylvania and Hungary on an educational errand, and then returned to Lisa. In the course of the war, this town was destroyed, and Comenius again lost all of his possessions. The great pansophic dictionary that had engaged him for many years went with the rest. A loss, he said, that he should cease to lament only when he should cease to breathe. His next home was Amsterdam, where he set himself to collect, revise, and supplement his writings on didactics, and where they were published in four folio volumes in 1657. At some time, according to Cotton Mather, he was offered the presidency of Harvard College. After the publication of his works, he lived thirteen years employed in teaching, in writing, and in pastoral labors. He died November 15, 1671, in his eightieth year, having fully merited von Rommer's characterization, Comenius is a grand and venerable figure of sorrow, wandering, persecuted, and homeless during the terrible and desolating Thirty Years' War, he yet never despaired, but with enduring truth and strong in faith, he labored unweariedly to prepare youth by a better education for a better future. In 1892, on the 300th anniversary of his birth, the educators of the world united to honor his memory, and at that time a monument was erected at Narden, Holland, the little village where he died and was buried. At Leipzig there is a pedagogical library, founded in his honor on the 200th anniversary of his birth, which numbers more than 66,000 volumes. Comenius wrote 135 books and treatises, most of which were translated during his lifetime into all the languages of Europe and several languages of Asia. Not all of them related to education. He wrote voluminously on religious subjects also. To name and characterize his didactic works would far transcend the limits of this notice. We can do no more than draw an outline of his pedagogical system. Early in the Renaissance, the ancient literatures took complete possession of the minds of scholars and teachers. As these literatures were nowhere the vernacular, the schools were made machines for teaching the Latin and Greek languages. Sometimes the results were better, sometimes worse. We may hope that Comenius spoke of the schools at their worst estate when he said that they were the terror of boys and the slaughterhouses of minds, places where hatred of literature and books was contracted where what ought to be poured in gently was forced in violently, and where what ought to be put clearly was presented in a confused and intricate manner, as if it were a collection of puzzles. Ten years, he said, are given to the study of the Latin tongue, and after all the result is disappointing. Boyhood is distracted for years with precepts of grammar, infinitely prolix, perplexed, and obscure, and for the most part useless. 
boys are stuffed with vocabularies without associating the words with things, or indeed with one another. For the time it was impossible, even if desirable, to overturn the established system, and Comenius, while still at Perot, addressed himself to the problem of simplifying the teaching of Latin. His first book, Grammaticae Facilioris Precepta, written for his own pupils, was published at Prague in 1616. The great impression that the Janua produced shows how ready men were to welcome anything that promised to mitigate the evils of the prevailing methods of teaching. But deeply interested as he was in teaching languages, Comenius still saw that it was by no means the great educational question of the time. Early in life he had become a disciple of the new inductive philosophy, and of all the titles that have been conferred upon him, that of the Bacon of Education is the most significant. The impression that he received from Bacon was most profound. Several of his titles, as Didactica Magna, Pansophiae Prodromis, and Silva, suggest titles before used by his master. Looking at education from the Baconian point of view, Comenius proposed to make it an inductive science. He found in nature the great storehouse of education material. Do we not dwell in the Garden of Eden, he demanded, as well as our predecessors? Why should not we use our eyes and ears and noses as well as they? And why need we other teachers than these in learning to know the works of nature? Why should we not, instead of these dead books, open to the children the living book of nature? Why not open their understandings to the things themselves, so that from them, as from living springs, many streamlets may flow? Holding these views and putting them effectively before the world, he became the founder of the pedagogical school known as the Sense Realists. But much more than this, he had the rare merit of seeing that modern education must be built on the basis of the modern languages, and so he proposed to call the elementary school the vernacular school, things before words and vernacular words before foreign words. Comenius's best-known books are The Didactica Magna and The Orbis Sensualium Pictus. The first was written in Czech, the author's vernacular, one of the best of the Slavonic dialects, during his first residence in Lisa, but was not published until a later day, and then in Latin. It is a general treatise on method. After many workings and tossings of my thoughts, he says, by setting everything to the immovable laws of nature, he lighted upon this treatise, which shows the art of readily and solidly teaching all things. The Orbis Pictus, which was only a modification of the Genua, first appeared in 1657. Hull, the English translator, renders the Latin title thus, Visible World, or a nomenclature and pictures of all the chief things that are in the world, and of men's employments therein. The Orbis Pictus has been called Children's First Picture Book, and it obtained much the widest circulation and use of all the reformer's works. It was written to illustrate his ideas of teaching things and words together. Its keynote is struck by the legend, There is nothing in the intellect that is not first in the sense. The lessons, of which there are 194 words, are given in Latin and German, and are each illustrated with a copper cut. 
while the book is wholly unsuited to our use, it is still an interesting pedagogical memorial, archaic and quaint. But Bacon's influence on Comenius was far greater than has yet appeared. The philosopher had large conceptions of the kingdom of knowledge, and the disciple accepted these conceptions in their most exaggerated form. He became the founder of Pansophia. Men could attain to universal knowledge if they were rightly taught and guided. When his eye had once caught this vision, it never wandered from it to the day of his death. He projected a pansophic school and spent half a lifetime in seeking a patron who would help him to realize his dream. Save some of the first ones, his didactic treatises were written as means to a pansophic end. The books that have made him immortal he counted but as dust in the balance, compared with the piles of manuscripts that he produced devoted to all knowledge. In fact, he almost despised himself because, partly persuaded by his patrons and advisers and partly compelled by the necessities of livelihood, he gave so much time to things didactic. Thus Comenius was like Bacon, in that his real service to the world was something quite different from what he proposed for its benefit. He was like Bacon also in this, that he put forth the same work, practically so, in more than one form. The mistakes of Comenius lie upon the surface. He entertained exaggerated views of the results to flow to mankind from the enlargement of knowledge, he greatly overestimated the value of method, and so, very naturally, greatly magnified what the human mind is able to accomplish in the field of learning. He carried much too far his sensational principles, and seriously underestimated the ancient learning and letters. But these mistakes, and even pan-sophism itself, may be not only excused, but welcomed, since they undoubtedly contributed at the time, and since, to educational progress. It must not be supposed that Comenius had no precursors. Bacon had disclosed to men his vision of the kingdom of knowledge. Rabelais had published his realistic views of education and his vast scheme of studies. Montaigne had delivered his criticisms on current teaching and submitted his suggestions for reform. Mulcaster had given to the world his far-reaching anticipations of the future. Ratich, the John the Baptist of the new movement, to whom Comenius was probably most indebted next to Bacon, had gone far in revolt from the existing regime but it was left to Comenius to give the new pedagogy a shaping and an impulse that well entitled him to be called its founder. Comenius has still other credentials to permanent fame. He advocated popular education, contended for the union of knowledge with morals and piety, proposed the higher education of women, propounded the existing tripartite division of education, and devised a system of graded instruction for schools of a decidedly modern character. His place in the educational pantheon is secure, but not so much by reason of his didactics, which are now largely antiquated, as by reason of his spirit. As Mr. Quick has said, he saw that every human creature should be trained up to become a reasonable being, and that the training should be such as to draw out the God-given faculties. Thus he struck the keynote of the science of education. Burke A. Hinsdale Author's Preface to the Orbis Pictus Instruction is the means to expel rudeness, 
with which young wits ought to be well furnished in schools. But so is that the teaching be, one, true, two, full, three, clear, and four, solid. One. It will be true, if nothing be taught but such as is beneficial to one's life, lest there be a cause of complaining afterwards. We know not necessary things, because we have not learned things necessary. 2. It will be full, if the mind be polished for wisdom, the tongue for eloquence, and the hands for a neat way of living. This will be that grace of one's life, to be wise, to act, to speak. 3. 4. It will be clear, and by that, firm and solid, if whatever is taught and learned be not obscure or confused, but apparent, distinct, and articulate as the fingers on the hands. The ground of this business is that sensual objects may be rightly presented to the senses, for fear they may not be received. I say, and say it again aloud, that this last is the foundation of all the rest, because we can neither act nor speak wisely, unless we first rightly understand all the things which are to be done, and whereof we are to speak. Now there is nothing in the understanding which was not before in the sense, and, therefore, to exercise the senses well about the right perceiving the differences of things will be to lay the grounds for all wisdom, and all wise discourse, and all discreet actions in one's course of life, which, because it is commonly neglected in our schools, and the things which are to be learned are offered to scholars without being understood or being rightly presented to the senses, it cometh to pass that the work of teaching and learning goeth heavily onward, and affordeth little benefit. See here, then, a new help for schools, a picture and nomenclature of all the chief things in the world, and of men's actions in their way of living, which that you, good masters, may not be loath to run over with your scholars, I tell you, in short, what good you may expect from it. It is a little book, as you see, of no great bulk, yet a brief of the whole world, and a whole language, full of pictures, nomenclatures, and descriptions of things. Roman numeral 1. The pictures are the representations of all visible things, to which also things invisible are reduced after their fashion of the whole world, and that in that very order of things in which they are described in the Genua Latina Linguae, and with that fullness that nothing very necessary or of great concernment is omitted. Roman numeral two. The nomenclatures are the inscriptions, or titles, set every one over their own pictures, expressing the whole thing by its own general term. Roman numeral three. The descriptions are the explications of the parts of the picture, so expressed by their own proper terms, as the same figure which is added to every piece of the picture, and the term of it always showeth what things belongeth one to another. Which such book, and in such address, may I hope to serve? Roman numeral one, To entice witty children to it, that they may not conceit it a torment to be in school, but dainty fare. For it is apparent that children, even from their infancy almost, are delighted with pictures, and willingly please their eyes with these lights, and it will be very well worth the pains to have once brought it to pass, that scarecrows may be taken away out of wisdom's gardens. Roman numeral two. 
This same little book will serve to stir up the attention, which is to be fastened upon things, and even to be sharpened more and more, which is also a great matter. For the senses, being the main guides of childhood, because therein the mind doth not as yet raise up itself to an abstracted contemplation of things, evermore seek their own objects, and if they may be away, they grow dull, and wry themselves hither and thither out of a weariness of themselves. But when their objects are present, they grow merry, wax lively, and willingly suffer themselves to be fastened upon them, till the thing be sufficiently discerned. This book, then, will do a good piece of service in taking especially flickering wits and preparing them for deeper studies. Roman numeral three. Whence a third good will follow, that children, being one thereunto, and drawn over with this way of heeding, may be furnished with the knowledge of the prime things that are in the world, by sport and merry pastime. In a word, this book will serve for the more pleasing using of the vestibulum and genera linguarum, for which end it was even at the first chiefly intended. Yet, if it like any that it be bound up in their native tongues also, it promiseth three good things of itself. Roman numeral one. First, it will afford a device for learning to read more easily than hitherto, especially having a symbolical alphabet set before it, to wit the characters of the several letters with the image of that creature whose voice that letter goeth about to imitate, pictured by it. For the young A.B.C. scholar will easily remember the force of every character by the very looking upon the creature, till the imagination, being strengthened by use, can readily afford all things. And then, having looked over a table of the chief syllables also, which yet was not thought necessary to be added to this book, he may proceed to the viewing of the pictures and the inscriptions set over them, where again, the very looking upon the thing pictured, suggesting the name of the thing, will tell him how the title of the picture is to be read, and thus the whole book, being gone over by the bare titles of the pictures, reading cannot but be learned. And indeed, too, which thing is to be noted, without using any ordinary tedious spelling, that most troublesome torture of wits, which may wholly be avoided by this method. For the often reading over the book, by those larger descriptions of things, and which are set after the pictures, will be able perfectly to beget a habit of reading. Roman numeral two. The same book being used in English, in English schools, will serve for the perfect learning of the whole English tongue, and that from the bottom, because by the aforesaid descriptions of things, the words and phrases of the whole language are found set orderly in their proper places and a short English grammar might be added at the end, clearly resolving the speech already understood into its parts, showing the declining of the several words, and reducing those that are joined together under certain rules. Roman numeral three. Thence a new benefit cometh, that that very English translation may serve for the more ready and pleasant learning of the Latin tongue. As one may see in this edition, the whole book being so translated that everywhere one word answereth to the word over against it, and the book is in all things the same, only in two idioms as a man clad in a double garment. And there might be also some observations and advertisements added at the end, touching those things only wherein the use of the Latin tongue differeth from English. For where there is no difference, 
there needeth no advertisements to be given. But because the first tasks of the learner ought to be little and single, we have filled this first book of training, one up, to see a thing of himself, with nothing but rudiments, that is, with the chief of things and words, or with the grounds of the whole world, and the whole language, and of all our understanding about things. If a more perfect description of things, and a fuller knowledge of a language, and a clearer light of the understanding be sought after, as they ought to be, they are to be found somewhere whither there will now be an easy passage by this, our little encyclopedia of things subject to the senses. Something remaineth to be said touching the more cheerful use of this book. Roman numeral one. Let it be given to children into their hands to delight themselves with all as they please with the sight of the pictures, and making them as familiar to themselves as may be, and that even at home before they are put to school. Roman numeral two. Then let them be examined ever and anon, especially now in the school, what this thing or that thing is, and is called, so that they may see nothing which they know not how to name, and that they can name nothing which they cannot show. Roman numeral three. And let the things named them be showed, not only in the picture, but also in themselves, for example, the parts of the body, clothes, books, the house, utensils, etc. Roman numeral four. Let them be suffered also to imitate the pictures by hand, if they will. Nay, rather let them be encouraged that they may be willing, first thus to quicken the attention also towards the things, and to observe the proportion of the parts one towards the other, and lastly, to practice the nimbleness of the hand, which is good for many things. Roman numeral five. If anything here mentioned cannot be presented to the eye, it will be to no purpose at all to offer them by themselves to the scholars, as colors, relishes, etc., which cannot here be pictured out with ink, for which reason it were to be wished that things rare and not easy to be met with all at home might be kept ready in every great school, that they may be showed also, as often as any words are to be made by them, to the scholars. School of Infancy Claims of Childhood That children are an inestimable treasure, the Spirit of God by the lips of David testifies, saying, Lo, the children are the heritages of the Lord, the fruit of the womb his reward. As arrows in the hand, so are children. Blessed is the man who has filled his quiver with them. He shall not be confounded. David declares those to be happy on whom God confers children. The same is also evident from this, that God, purposing to testify his love towards us, calls us children, as if there were no more excellent name by which to commend us. Moreover, he is very greatly incensed against those who deliver their children to Malak. It is also worthy our most serious consideration that God, in respect of the children of even idolatrous parents, calls them children born to him, thus indicating that they are born not for ourselves, but for God, and as God's offspring they claim our most profound respect. Hence in Malachi, children are called the seed of God, whence arises the offspring of God. For this reason the eternal Son of God, when manifested in the flesh, not only willed to become the participator of the flesh of children, 
but likewise deemed children a pleasure and a delight. Taking them in his arms as little brothers and sisters, he carried them about and kissed them and blessed them. Not only this, he likewise uttered a severe threat against anyone who should offend them, even in the least degree, commanding them to be respected as himself, and condemning, even with severe penalties, any who offend even the smallest of them. Should anyone wish to inquire why he so delighted in little children, and so strictly enjoined upon us such respectful attention to them, many reasons may be ascertained. And first, if the little ones seem unimportant to you, regard them not as they now are, but as in accordance with the intention of God they may and ought to be. You will see them not only as the future inhabitants of the world and possessors of the earth, and God's vicars amongst his creatures when we depart from this life, but also equally participators with us in the heritage of Christ, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, associates of angels, judges of devils, the delight of heaven, the terror of hell, heirs of the most excellent dignities throughout all the ages of eternity. What can be imagined more excellent than this? Philip Melanchthon, of pious memory, having upon one occasion entered a common school, looked upon the pupils therein assembled, and began his address to them in these words, Hail, reverend pastors, doctors, licentiates, superintendents, hail, most noble, most prudent, most learned lords, consuls, praetors, judges, prefects, chancellors, secretaries, magistrates, professors, etc. When some of the bystanders received these words with a smile, he replied, I am not jesting. My speech is serious, for I look on these little boys not as they are now, but with a view to the purpose of the divine mind, on account of which they are delivered to us for instruction. For assuredly some such will come forth from among the number, although there may be an intermixture of chaff among them as there is among wheat. Such was the animated address of this most prudent man. But why should not we with equal confidence declare in respect of all children of Christian parents, those glorious things which have been mentioned above, since Christ, the promulgator of the eternal secrets of God, has pronounced that, of such is the kingdom of heaven. But if we consider only their present state, it will at once be obvious why children are of inestimable value in the sight of God, and ought to be so to their parents. In the first place, they are valuable to God because, being innocent with the sole exception of original sin, they are not yet the defaced image of God by having polluted themselves with actual guilt, and are unable to discern between good and evil, between the right hand and the left. That God has respect to this is abundantly manifest from the above words addressed to John, and from other passages of the sacred writ. Secondly, they are the pure and dearly purchased possession of Christ, since Christ, who came to seek the lost, is said to be the Savior of all, except those who by incredulity and impenitence shut themselves out from being participators in his merits. These are the purchased from among men, that they may be the first fruits unto God and the Lamb, having not yet defiled themselves with the allurements of sin, but they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, and that they may continue so to follow they ought to be led, as it were, 
with the hand by a pious education. Finally, God so embraces children with abounding love that they are a peculiar instrument of divine glory. As the scriptures testify, from the lips of infants and sucklings thou hast perfected praise, because of mine enemies, that thou mayest destroy the enemy and avenger. How it comes to pass that God's glory should receive increase from children is certainly not at once obvious to our understanding. But God, the discerner of all things, knows and understands, and declares it to be so. That children ought to be dearer and more precious to parents than gold and silver, than pearls and gems, may be discovered from a comparison between both of these gifts from God. For first, gold, silver, and such other things are inanimate, being only somewhat harder and purer than the clay which we tread beneath our feet, whereas children are the lively image of the living God. Secondly, gold and silver are rudimentary objects produced by the command of God, whereas children are creatures in the production of which the all-sacred Trinity instituted special counsel and formed them with his own fingers. Thirdly, gold and silver are fleeting and transitory things. Children are an immortal inheritance. For although they yield to death, yet they neither return to nothing nor become extinct. They only pass out of a mortal tabernacle into immortal regions. Hence, when God restored to Job all his riches and possessions, even to the double of what he had previously taken away, he gave him no more children than he had before namely, seven sons and three daughters. This, however, was the precise double, inasmuch as the former sons and daughters had not perished, but had gone before to God. Fourthly, gold and silver come forth from the earth. Children come from our own substance. Being a part of ourselves, they consequently deserve to be loved by us, certainly not less than we love ourselves. Therefore God has implanted in the nature of all living things so strong an affection towards their young that they occasionally prefer the safety of their offspring to their own. If any one transfers such affections to gold or silver, he is, in the judgment of God, condemned as guilty of idolatry. Fifthly, gold and silver pass away from one to another as though they were the property of none but common to all, whereas children are a peculiar possession, divinely assigned to their parents, so that there is not a man in the world who can deprive them of this right, or dispossess them of this inheritance, because it is a portion descended from heaven, and not a transferable possession. Sixthly, although gold and silver are gifts of God, yet they are not such gifts as those to which he has promised an angelic guardianship from heaven. Nay, Satan mostly intermingles himself with gold and silver, so as to use them as nets and snares to entangle the unwary, drawing them, as it were, with thongs, to avarice, haughtiness, and prodigality, whereas the care of little children is always committed to angelic guardianship, as the Lord himself testifies. Hence he who has children within his house may be certain that he has therein the presence of angels. He who takes little children in his arms may be assured that he takes angels." Whosoever, surrounded with midnight darkness, rests beside an infant, may enjoy the certain consolation that with it he is so protected that the spirit of darkness cannot have access. 
how great the importance of these things. Seventhly, gold, silver, and other external things do not procure for us the love of God, nor as children do, defend us from his anger. For God so loved children that for their sake he occasionally pardons parents. Nineveh affords an example. Inasmuch as there were many children therein, God spared the parents from being swallowed up by the threatened judgment. Eighthly, human life does not consist in abundance of wealth, as our Lord says, since without God's blessings neither food nourishes, nor plaster heals, nor clothing warms. But his blessing is always present with us for the sake of children, in order that they may be sustained. For if God liberally bestows food on the young ravens calling on him, how much more should he not care for children, his own image? Therefore Luther has wisely said, We do not nourish our children, but they nourish us. For because of these innocents, God supplies necessaries, and we aged sinners partake of them. Finally, silver, gold, and gems afford us no further instruction than other created things do, namely in the wisdom, power, and beneficence of God, whereas children are given to us as a mirror in which we may behold modesty, courteousness, benignity, harmony, and other Christian virtues, the Lord himself declaring, Unless ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Since then, God has willed that children should be unto us in the place of preceptors. We judge that we owe to them the most diligent attention. Thus at last this school would become a school of things obvious to the senses, and an entrance to the school intellectual. But enough. Let us come to the thing itself. By permission of D.C. Heath and Company. End of section two. Recording by Sky Asimaru. Mililani, Hawaii, April 2020.